What Brings You In Today is produced by medical students at the University of Wisconsin. As medical students, we are not fully trained physicians or licensed to practice medicine. The information presented here is for entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or education. To preserve privacy and maintain patient confidentiality, identifying details about patients were changed for this podcast. All opinions expressed belong to the speaker, not their institution or employer. Funding for What Brings You In Today is provided by the Kern Foundation. Hi, I'm Beth. And I'm Kaya. And this is What Brings You In Today, sharing stories and experiences from within the medical field. So tell me, what brings you in today? Each spring, the UWS and PH chapter of the Gold Humanism Honor Society hosts a night of storytelling. They provide a platform for students and faculty to share their stories with the UWS and PH community. We are so honored to be partnering with them again to share the moving stories from the 2023 night of storytelling. Plans, But my uncle is so strong and really stubborn, not ready to leave this earth yet. But my head is constantly wondering what went wrong in the two weeks since I had seen him. I was worried, and the medical part of my brain is trying to put together all of the pieces while preparing myself for the worst. My family in the Midwest asks for my opinion on the situation, and I'm not sure what to tell them. High ferritin levels clue the physicians into testing for a rare disease, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH, and the result is positive. Now, there is hope for treatment. We all send prayers down south, especially as my aunt and cousins decide if giving my uncle chemotherapy is the right choice because his immune system needs a reboot. The physicians say he likely won't get better without it. After getting a sign, my aunt and cousins move forward with the treatment, and over the rest of June, my uncle slowly improves. July 2022. A week after starting the chemotherapy, my uncle is off of the ventilator and now has a trach. My aunt has been giving us regular updates as she's in the hospital every single day with my uncle, and I can't imagine the toll that it's taking on her. As July goes on, my uncle is slowly weaning off of the trach, is getting stronger every day, and wants to talk. He is even sitting in a recliner chair, truly the wonders of PT and OT. Despite continuous infections, courses of antibiotics, and a brief hiatus in his chemotherapy, my uncle makes baby steps of improvement. And at the end of July, my uncle has HSV-induced encephalitis, as well as blood clots in his legs. My aunt and cousins are deciding if he should have an IVC filter implanted to prevent any more clots from breaking off and causing a ruckus. It seems like every new day brings decisions to be made, and I know that the decision fatigue for them is real. August 2022. My parents and I were set to visit Georgia in the beginning of August, long before everything happened. Now we wait in the hospital, hoping my uncle is having a good day. Navigating through the hospital as a visiting family is very confusing because of COVID. And the nursing staff have to direct us where to wait. After several hours, my dad is able to go up and spend time with my uncle. My mom has decided not to go up and see my uncle 
that she wants to remember him the way that he was. This is a lesson that everybody processes situations differently, and there are no right or wrong answers when dealing with a situation like this. So I go up to my uncle's floor next and once again have to be directed slash slightly scolded about where to wait because COVID sure does make things complicated. This is what they were talking about in our preclinical classes when emotional people can have difficulty following even simple directions because that's me right now. I'm focused on one thing only, seeing my uncle. Eventually, my aunt comes to get me and I don a mask gloves, and disposable gown like I have done countless times before. But this time is different. I'm not walking in to see a patient. I'm going to see my uncle, who is very sick and very immunocompromised. This is a hard visit. I go in and introduce myself, but I get no response. I tell my uncle the things I need to say and on behalf of myself and my older sister, but I can tell that he's so tired. His eyes keep closing. As one would expect, he looks different than when I saw him two months ago. My uncle, who went to the gym multiple times per week, now looks like a ghost. My aunt comes into the room and reintroduces me, but it's clear that he doesn't know who I am. It's not his fault in the slightest, but it still hurts. I quickly scan my uncle's chart, noting his low neutrophil count. And in that moment, I feel proud about all that I have learned in medical school. How unbelievable it is that I can read his labs and explain to my aunt what a low neutrophil count even means. I also gain an appreciation for the amount of time it takes to care for someone in my uncle's condition. It takes three times longer to do anything, and because of his expansive care team, meetings, and getting answers takes a long time too. That must be so frustrating. Eventually, I am ready to say goodbye. I take one last look as I close the door knowing that it very well might be the last time we are together. In the days following our trip, my uncle becomes more alert, but the result is that he is sad and mad and wants to go home. And I can't imagine how tough that is for my aunt that she can't take him with her. His kidneys and lungs are improving and he has the filter for blood clots placed. They also discover that the steroids were causing my uncle serious brain fog. He was given a reprieve and has been acting like his old self. On August 21st, my sister and I FaceTime my uncle, and my uncle recognizes us. He talks about his experience with God, the plans he has made for once he leaves the hospital, and how much he loves us and is proud of us. He tells us he wants all of our family to go on a riverboat at Christmas time. We laugh, but we are all holding on to the possibility of seeing each other again. I am in the invaders and defense block of my preclinical education. A lot of what has been going on with my uncle has started coming together in my brain. Learning about HLH from Dr. Ranheim, about different infections and their treatments. I call and share with my aunt what I have learned. But because of what I have learned, I am still very worried for my uncle. The knowledge feels like a blessing and a curse. My family asks for opinions about my uncle's situation, but I am still not sure what to tell them. September 2022. At the beginning of September, my uncle is getting stronger mentally every day. He's done with chemotherapy, which is an amazing feat. However, he now has a large stage four bed sore that is infected and needs to be debrided. He has to stop PT because it's so painful for him to move. We all pray and hope that things will get better. We find out the bed sore was infected with pseudomonas. Now, this is right before my first IND exam. And so when I see the word pseudomonas, 
I think about all of the different antibiotics that they could be using to treat it. I find it difficult to separate the personal and the school. At the end of September, my uncle has pneumonia, but the bed sore wound is healing bit by bit. He still has the trach and he's still getting dialysis, but much less frequently as his kidneys improve. My family waits for an opening at a long-term acute care or LTAC facility so that my uncle can finally leave the hospital. And on September 29th, a spot opens up for him. October, 2022. October 4th came with so much good news. It seems like my uncle will be transferred to the LTAC facility in the next three to five days. He is doing a great job of breathing, so his trach will be taken off later in the day. My uncle has improved so much that the dialysis port and the IVC filter are no longer needed and will also both be taken out in the afternoon. We are also hopeful and eager to see my uncle recover so that we can spend time with him again. Four days later, Saturday, October 8th. My uncle has developed fluid in his lungs. His kidneys are not doing well and he needs dialysis again. He is having difficulty tolerating the feeding tube. My uncle is weak but he has been a fighter all of his life and I am not willing to give up hope. Unfortunately, he is now too unstable to be moved to the LTAC facility. One day later, Sunday, October 9th, my uncle starts throwing up bile. His lungs and kidneys are not doing well. My aunt and cousins make the compassionate decision to place my uncle on comfort care. He is ready to go home and meet the Lord. I am so incredibly grateful for the time that I was able to spend with my uncle <clears throat> for my visit last night, that he was able to meet my partner, share some last stories that will leave me laughing for ages, and that I have a picture to remember it all by. It was an exhausting emotional journey, and now it has come to an end. My sister calls to ask me how long I think it will be before he passes, and I'm not sure what to tell her. One day, Two days later, Tuesday, October 11th, my uncle passes away peacefully in the hospital, surrounded by my aunt and cousins. Throughout our experiences in medicine, we often get desensitized to the emotions that are tied up in every single patient that we see. I wanted to share a glimpse of the trials and tribulations that my aunt and cousins had to face daily, of what my uncle struggled through, of me as a medical student struggling with the burden of seemingly knowing too much and yet not knowing nearly enough, of the importance of hope, of the difficulties of dealing with grief. There's no medical textbook that can teach us how to work through that, only experience can. And we will all experience it. It gets easier but it doesn't go away. I still thought about him last week on his birthday when I went walking by Lake Monona. I'm thinking about him today on my birthday, secretly wishing I'll see a text from him on my phone telling me he loves me and is proud of me. And I'll think of him in September when I see an empty place setting for him at my sister's wedding. And I have and will think of him many more times in between. He always supported me, strive to keep me safe and was my confidant and he will forever be a part of my heart thank you for listening to my uncle's story go dogs
Next up is Nick. Hi everyone, my name is Nick. I'm a second year medical student here. Um, first off, I want to say thank you to Dr. Ruff who came here today. Um, he's my LPC and he's the one that first encouraged me last semester to start writing. And so I did and here we are. Um, my essay is called Out of Options. We are taught as medical students to solve problems. A patient has a staph infection, we have antibiotics for that. Diabetes, lifestyle changes, and meds can help. But patients are not Lego sets. They do not come with instruction manuals for achieving an ideal result. While our preclinical classes give us good foundations on pathology and treatments, they do not teach us how to handle the uncertainty and emotions of managing incurable diseases. So what do you do when there's nothing to be done? It was late summer and I was assisting my phase one preceptor physician at an internal medicine clinic. I had completed more than a year of medical school at this point, and I was finally starting to feel confident in my clinical skills and knowledge. We progressed through a morning of seeing patients, attending to common complaints from chest pain and cough to hearing loss and hemorrhoids. I was sitting at the computer when Epic signal at the room of our next patient, a man who we will call Mr. Jones, was complete. I hung my stethoscope around my neck, straightened my tie, and my preceptor and I entered his exam room. Mr. Jones, tall with a bristly brown beard and wearing a Packers t-shirt, quintessential Wisconsinite, was seated with his elbows on his knees, appearing distraught. We introduced ourselves and sat down to begin the visit. Excited and rather naive to solve his problems and send, home happy, send him home happy and healthy, I asked, so what brings you in today? Thus began my first experience of feeling totally, utterly, and incomprehensibly powerless. I just want to feel stronger, he shared resignedly while looking at me. Can you help me with that? Mr. Jones had ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, a disorder that results in the progressive destruction of the neurons that control voluntary muscles. Patients experience muscle weakness that worsens to the point that they cannot talk, eat, and worst of all, breathe. As for treatment, a couple of drugs can mildly slow the progression of the disease. However, ALS is ultimately incurable and fatal, with an average life expectancy of less than five years. I paused and replied, tell me more. Over the next few minutes, Mr. Jones conveyed the difficulties he faced. He faced, he had trouble sleeping and walking. His eyes were bloodshot red and he always felt like crap. His antidepressant medications were not working and the only thing that made him feel better were corticosteroids, which he was taking for an adverse drug reaction. ALS was a five-ton boulder that he bravely carried on his shoulders every waking moment. I listened as my preceptor and Mr. Jones discussed referrals and adjusting medications, including taking him off the corticosteroids. This made Mr. Jones even more dispirited. So you're telling me that there isn't anything that you can do to make this go away, to make me feel normal again. In that moment, a straight jacket of sorrow tightened around my chest. I wanted to cry. I wanted to walk over and bear hug this big burly man and tell him that everything would be okay. I felt terrified witnessing such pain, knowing that there was nothing we could do to fix it. As the discussion with my preceptor slowed, I asked Mr. Jones one more question. Lots of patients in these kinds of situations find talking to a therapist to be helpful, I said. Would you be interested in this? No, thank you, he politely responded. I have my family for that. With that, my box of solutions, nearly organized, neatly organized in my head by countless hours of lectures and studying PowerPoint slides, ran empty. I felt powerless, like the feeling you get watching a car slide uncontrollably down an icy hill. All I could do was sit there and hope for the best. 
When we finished the visit and Mr. Jones stood up to leave, I squarely faced him and shook his hand. It was great meeting you, I said. I'm really glad that you came in today. He paused, looked at me, and thanked me before walking away. I admired Mr. Jones' strength and resilience in the face of an unsolvable condition such as ALS. However, that morning, cleansed of my naivete, I fully felt that intense, frustrated, and infuriating helplessness that results from the limits of medicine are reached. Over the next few days, I kept returning to that visit with Mr. Jones in my head. I ruminated what we possibly could have done differently to have better helped him. Thus, like most people with burning questions, I went to Google. A search led me to a publication by the Italian palliative care physician Antonella Goesis. In her article, Dr. Goesis shared that the best way to attend to patients with incurable conditions relies on fulfilling two primary needs. The first is to ensure that the patients feel welcome and accepted. And the second is to listen, to deeply focus on both the spoken and unspoken things that they share. This wisdom gave me a sense of closure for a couple of reasons. First, it equipped me with a clearer script for dealing with similar situations in the future, as I'm a big fan of protocols and stepwise instructions. And, but second, and most importantly, it gave me relief knowing that we did every, ultimately did everything right for Mr. Jones. Although I likely will never see him again, I hope that he left our clinic that day feeling as though we listened to and truly cared about him. In the end, for patients living with unsolvable conditions such as ALS, that is the best result that you can hope for. Next up, we have Kaya. My journey started in the summer of 2020. It was the summer that created the perfect storm of destruction. The height of the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd. Both pivotal events in American history, events that have forced us as a nation to reckon with for far too long unspoken inequities that have impacted its black and brown citizens. I too had to reckon with this fact. These truths I had known for years, but this summer was different. Perhaps it was too much at once. The intersection of so much injustice causing so much pain, I found myself recoiling into the depths of my home, hiding from the world around me, looking for comfort where no one was to be found. For the first time, I had known despair. The despair led me to write a short story in an effort to put to words this newfound feeling. Slightly modified from its original state, I will share the story, entitled What the Ribs Can Handle. Her lungs filled with air, expanding with the fullness of life that for more than a moment she despised herself. The force of mourning warranted the release of the air she had stolen. For 21 years, she had been breathing. She never paid it any mind. She had thought her breath, her air, was hers alone. She took it for granted. Her youth had granted her naivety. She had not known that the air that kept her alive was the same that she shared with her kin, both blood and in spirit. It was never hers alone to keep. Yet selfishly, she dared breathe now while she watched the news. She breathed again when she hid her face from it. She continued breathing as the world around her burned. As her city puffed up and fell to the ground in a cloudy, ashy haze, as people marched and others disregarded, she even dared breathe now in the comfort of her home, her television inflamed, her lungs filled with the air of someone's last breath. This story was born out of guilt and frankly hopelessness. At the time, living with an immunocompromised parent, while the uncertainty of the pandemic was right, I wasn't able to protest. I wasn't able to march. I felt I could do nothing. And all the while I was at home, of all things, studying for the MCAT. I felt so selfish in my endeavors. People were hurrying all across the nation. 
a time when my voice felt needed more than ever, and I was studying for an entrance exam that couldn't have felt more irrelevant when so many people were suffering. In 2020, I was a pain and tired young woman, exhausted from watching every system this nation holds repeatedly hurt some of its most vulnerable populations. When 2023, I'm a young medical student working towards obtaining her medical degree, the soon-to-be first doctor of her family. Last week, a patient told me he was proud of me. An older black gentleman, he reminded me something of my own grandfather. I really am, he said to me. I don't see too many of us in these roles. Keep going. That moment was a release. He reminded me in that moment what it was all for. Studying for the MCAT, taking the exam, although seemed useless at the time, it led me here. Make no mistake, I have not forgotten that despair. That pain and guilt is still something I carry with me, but instead of letting it chain me to my room as it had, I now use it as my reason to keep going. Moments like the one I shared with this patient are why I keep going. A chance to pay homage to those who weren't able to go on the journey with me, and a chance one day to honor the living with the care I will provide. My journey began in the summer of 2020, but that journey led me here today. Although there was little I could do then, there's so much that I can do now. Since coming to medical school, I've had the opportunity to try my hand at creating policy, speak with local legislators, and share my story at events such as, such as this, all on the goal of creating lasting change in not only our school or the state, but our nation. That summer left me broken, but through the years, I've been able to slowly rebuild myself to the person I want to be, the person who can recognize these hardships, face them, and change them. Thank you. Now, I'll be honest, uh, in getting prepared for this, I found myself feeling kind of anxious and I couldn't quite figure it out. And I think it's because I know that we have a lot of really touching stories being told tonight. And one of these stories is the one that I'm about to tell for Tony, who wasn't able to be here. But um, even in his absence, this is the importance of storytelling, which is to keep the memory alive, whether it's of an uncle or a patient that was very impactful or even just a patient that you met along the journey. Sean Osterman used to be a decent swimmer and a senior teammate on my high school swim team. After graduating, Sean followed in the footsteps of his father and became a re reconnaissance Marine. Special ain't in the name, but they taught him how to swim a little better. I decided I'd try my hand in the Navy instead. The Navy job title seemed more sublime, but for every heroic intention in uniform, there seems to exist a mad demand. I believe Sean saw something good through the madness and that propelled him to train into a platoon. I could not, so I rang the bell and left Naval Amphibious Base Coronado. That base hangs like a spine chilling sign off the Silver Strand, a sign I failed to see beforehand. Anyways, after leaving Coronado, I was sent to join a carrier. On my carrier, we worked hard to catch and maintain all our aircraft and souls on board. Notably, not a single combat mission was flown from my ship in the years I sailed with her. And I grew prouder of that coincidence as the years passed. One night after all our airframes had landed safely, a few of us were standing fire watch on the, fight, on the flight deck. The bridge had turned off all but one small exterior light. There was no moon but there was just enough illumination to keep us tumbling over the edge and into the passing ocean below. A fantastic meteor shower began overhead, 
we laid on our backs in the bow of flight deck of the flight deck and laughed beneath the dancing cosmos with our souls safely below deck. That was truly a sublime experience. Sean and I haven't spoken to each other since our time together on the swim team. He'd tease me during practice, but he'd be one of those first to congratulate me after a race, regardless of who won. The colleagues I've met here remind me of Sean. All seem focused on the oath ahead of them while marching dutifully down the path of saved lives and called death. However, I believe in my core that the scale will always be tipped towards saving lives within the hospitals and the clinics, clinics of this world. With that, Sean Osterman died on December 16, 2010, from wounds sustained while serving during Operation Enduring Freedom. He died towards the end of my first semester of undergrad. A few years later, I visited his grave at Arlington National Center. A little while after, I left for Coronado alone. UWSMPH and uniformed service are different. And although the latter will always be behind me, I truly cherish some of its stories. Adam Brown, a sailor who fought substance abuse for many years, carried shoes for children while on his missions. Michael Murphy stepped from a position of safety and broke the restraints of the prisoners before him. And Sean, he used to be a teammate of mine, and I think he would be proud of the work we do. So uh, next up is Nyla. So the story I wrote, I titled Up the Stream, and it's loosely based on one of my first experiences with a patient. We were tasked with going to the emergency department to search for upstream determinants of health. Um, and it was honestly a, a good experience I had. So um, this is loosely based on that. All the names are changed. I felt the stream rush from the pool of my deeply sunken eyes. The tears rolled down the sides of my face and wet my ears. My head being immobilized by a neck brace left me to use only my peripheral vision to see the bright flashes of her white smile against her dark skin. I went back to a time when I was that excited for life. The smells of saffron and wild mushrooms filled my dimly lit studio. I left the window open. I was waiting on the train to arrive to begin setting the table. I looked at the clock on the wall. It was a quarter after six. The sound of metal scraping the train tracks washed over the sounds of jailhouse rock and children's playful screams that just a moment before were seeping in from outside. I shut the window just as I heard the train slowing into the station. Setting the table was my favorite part. I carefully sculpted the potatoes leaving a hollow center where I placed neatly sliced chicken breasts. I covered it with one line of gravy and garnished it with parsley. I sat down and grabbed the letter, ready to share my acceptance into culinary school with the love of my life. A few minutes passed and I didn't hear her footsteps. One hour and then three. She called me from the payphone just outside her job during her lunch. Everything was fine. I gripped a glass of water and sat in the sill of the window. I jolted from my spot as I heard the knock at the door, and my cup fell from the grips of my fingers, crashing against the floor, leaving the water streaming through all the crevices of old wood that lined the floor. I opened the door. The first thing I saw was his black shoes. My eyes flowed up the legs of his blue pants, 
to his round belly covered by his hand empathetically gripping his police hat. I watched his mouth move, only hearing the words struck, car, unfortunately, and sorry. I closed the door and turned only slightly to stare out the window. With each train that passed, my memories of Naomi grew fonder. I watched the sun rise over Naomi's plate of food and the folded letter of the life I once knew. I trudged down the steps to the trash-filled streets and walked for miles until I landed at our favorite dinner, diner where the sun set over a plate of stale fries and an oversalted fried chicken breast. We came here every Saturday and I used to scarf down this meal before the waitress could come back to check on us a few minutes later. Now the meal seemed to taunt me, leaving me scared to take a bite. I walked out into the street and sat on the curb of the sidewalk. After a few hours, I stood up and turned to face oncoming traffic. I had to do something. I couldn't be here anymore. I inched closer to the edge of the sidewalk and slowly I lifted my arm and stuck out my thumb. I got into the first semi that passed and made my way across the country to some place named Madison in the middle of Wisconsin. He said he was dropping me off downtown, but the tallest building here was only a few stories high. The streets were spilling with students smoking cigarettes and talking about the war. My eyes scanned the sidewalks, trees, brick walls, and everything else until they landed on a help wanted sign for Mickey's Dairy Bar. When I walked in, I was, a gre I was greeted by the aroma of applewood smoked bacon and the rhythmic hums of conversations going on between families sitting at the booths that lined the walls. I claimed the last open seat at the bar and eavesdropped on the old men sitting next to me debriefing about some college football game. The machinery-like movement of the waitstaff and cooks catapulted me to the life I once knew. The familiar view that once gave me life left me feeling void and empty. My first few days of work here were hard. I was a cook, but I felt like an imposter. Without Naomi, I didn't have the same fire for food. The sounds of the kitchen lost the melody that once made it music. The vibrancy that once lived in the color of the foods had faded, and the only smells that lived in my nostrils belonged to burnt bacon. Months went by, and I was demoted to a busboy. I found it hard to do just about any and everything, especially going to work. The only thing that kept me going was the bar down the street from my apartment. One night at the bar, I met a couple that proposed a business plan, buy old computers and sell the parts to large tech companies. It sounded ridiculous, but I didn't have much else to live for. I agreed to join them in their work and I never showed up to Mickey's again. When I bargained my first computer purchase, I felt powerful. I felt even better when I talked the tech company into purchasing the parts for a much higher price than what I paid for them. Deal after deal, I grew the fiery passion for life that I once had. I moved from downtown to a quiet suburb and bought a car. Our business grew. We survived Y2K, 9-11, and the Bush administration. But then 2008 came and people were losing their jobs. The tech companies were closing, my house was foreclosed, and I found myself sitting on the curb again, lost, unsure about life. I needed to leave again. I reached in my bag and shuffled around until I found it. I poured them all out into my hand. I put them in my mouth all at once. I washed every pill down with a swish of cognac. My eyelids stopped fighting against the force of gravity. My body surrendered and my face abruptly met the cold, wet concrete. My last thoughts in that moment were of Naomi, the highs from a life I once knew, and the sweet smell of my favorite meal. Mr. Johnson, she whispered. I blinked, sending a single tear streaming down the left side of my face. I motioned for her to continue with her question. 
can you tell me more about what brought you in today? She said through a gentle smile. I could only hope that my tears would tell the story my mouth refused to relive. So that was just um, a story of a patient who came in with a fall. And I had a few extra minutes to talk to them and figure out um, everything else that had gone on in their life prior to that fall in that moment. Um, and this encounter and reflection just reminded me that a fall is never just a fall, that a tear holds a thousand words and providing a listening ear can be the strongest act of love. Um, I was challenged to always revert to love um, in all of my interactions with people as it is our greatest command as humans. And of course, as humans, we all fall short of loving one another and doing something as simple as slowing down to listen to someone else's story. Love can show up in many forms, but I think it's most important that we understand what love is and what it's not. It's patient and kind. Love is not proud, boastful, or rude. It does not rejoice at injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins. Finally, love never gives up. It never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. So I hope that tonight you don't remember just the story I shared with you, but what love truly is. Don't forget to love on yourself and share that love with someone else. Thank you. For our final storyteller of the night, Dean Seibert. Mm -hmm. It's a typical Tuesday on the inpatient general medicine service. In the morning, I round with the residents and the students, and I'm, I'm walking around the hospital seeing the patients myself. I get a text from my best friend. Hey, down in radiology. We'll be here for a few hours. Come visit. Well, I can tell she's trying to sound nonchalant. Is she forgetting what I do for a living? I know that there are absolutely no good reasons to be in radiology for a few hours. I get the room number and I walk quickly, but kind of controlled the way that I do when I get a call from a nurse or a call from a resident um, telling me to, asking me to come to the bedside and help. When I slide open the glass door to the room, I see her husband, one of our dearest friends on the gurney. He's bloated. He's jaundiced. He's changing positions, looking really uncomfortable and wincing as he moves. I want to shout out, what the heck happened and why didn't you call me sooner? But instead, I greet them with a plastered on smile and try to act normal, even though there's absolutely nothing about this that is normal. Just a month before, the four of us were together in an Airbnb on the shores of Lake Michigan, drinking cocktails and eating delicious food that we made together and playing crew on the beach. Had this great four-person raft. And so we laid on this raft under the bluest skies with the fluffiest clouds and talked about all the interesting places that we were going to go together when we retired. Now, they're telling me about the night sweats that started about a week after we came home from that trip and his progressive abdominal pain. He didn't think it was a big deal. She made him go see his PCP 
the PCP ordered labs, labs led to a CT, CT led to the biopsy that he's getting this afternoon. My friend hands me her phone so I can read the CT scan result, which thank you 2020 federal transparency mandate is visible in all of its horrible and minute details. Reading my friend's CT results, I'm acutely aware of both of them staring at me. And I do my best to keep my blank game face. I must read the report at least three or four times and it's not sinking in. Time stands completely still. The room is completely quiet. Large hepatic mass with multiple satellite masses and large lymph nodes ascites, and a suggestion of tumor in the splenic vein. Radiologists are rarely this committed to a diagnosis. He says, so it's cancer, right? Oh my God, yes, it's cancer. The most horrible, terrible kind of cancer. You're going to die much sooner than later. I want so badly that this is going to be okay. I don't want to look at your face when we talk about this. I don't want to be the person to tell you this. Oh my God, I cannot be the person to tell you this. So I tell a big, fat, terrible lie. Not necessarily. I've seen strange things happen in my medical career. You just don't know until the biopsy returns. This could definitely be some weird infection. Try not to jump to conclusions. I see them relax just a little bit, and a huge tsunami of guilt washes over me. Three days later, just after 6 p.m. on a Friday, I get a text from him. Heard from my PCP. He's sending me to oncology. Can you provide a quick interpretation? And then he cut and pastes the surgical path report, which was released to him five minutes after 5 p.m. on a Friday night. The report is long and it's detailed. Final diagnosis, poorly differentiated carcinoma of unknown primary, including paragraphs of comments about tumor markers, DNA mismatch repair, biomarker testing, immunohistochemistry results, the whole shame. His PCP called and gave him a very brief explanation and then told him it could be days or even a couple of weeks uh, before he's uh, going to be seen by oncology. And it's Friday night. And these are our best friends in the world. The couple that we're going to adventure with for the rest of our lives. So for the next hour, I talk them to the, through the results by phone. I give them my best cancer 101 talk and explain likely next steps in very broad terms. Poorly differentiated cancer of unknown primary is really hard for lay people to understand, but I think I help them get it. I reassure them that doctors will try to fingerprint this tumor and provide their best guess at chemotherapy. There will be therapy. People live with this and there's hope, but I'm not hopeful at all. Therapeutic options are going to suck, and people don't generally live with this very long. 
the idea that he may not make it to the birth of his first grandchild in a few months makes me physically ill. But I hide behind my incredibly overly optimistic half-truths. My friends are connected with the most wonderful oncologist, a colleague that I've known since he was a resident, who doesn't hesitate to take him on when I send him my weekend email. His pain continues to progress and he doesn't tolerate his first chemotherapy at all due to progressive abdominal pain and terrible nausea. This man who loves nothing more than a good meal and a good bourbon meat cannot eat a thing. Early on a Sunday morning, his wife texts me asking if she could bother me with a few questions. I call back immediately. She tells me that he's scaring her, that he can't always remember their three girls' names, and wonders if she should give him his scheduled long-acting morphine this morning. She contacted the on-call doctor system two hours ago, and they've not answered back. I tell her to hold the morphine, and we'll be right there. The minute we walk in the door and look at him, I know that we are going to the emergency department today. He's lethargic. He's not always making sense. But he definitely is incredibly clear that he is not going to the emergency room. And my friend talks about taking him first thing tomorrow, Monday. I leave my husband with his best friend. And I take uh, his wife around the block for a walk with me. We need to go to the ED today. I'm worried. Because she is the most practical person I know, I add that the ED is much less busy on a Sunday, and it's going to be quicker, knowing that there's absolutely nothing that is going to be quick about this. She relents, and it takes all three of us to get him to stand up and walk to the car. We practically carry him. It's a short drive to the emergency department. And fortunately, patients are now allowed two visitors um, in this time of waning COVID. They asked me to stay to be the medical interpreter uh, while my sweet husband waits patiently in the car. Our friend is hypotensive. His creatinine is four. He's given two doses of Narcan to try to reverse the opioids that he was given for the last time more than 12 hours ago. And it only briefly awakens him. My spidey sense is well honed after almost 30 years of inpatient and outpatient practice. This is very, very bad. Their three girls are texting. I watched the emergency department physician say that he's stable in a far too hopeful tone. My friend doesn't know what to tell her girls. One lives a plane flight away. So for the first time since all of this began, I look my dear, dear friend right in the eye, and in a voice that I can barely make audible, I tell her the brutal and most honest truth I know. Her daughter needs to come now, not in a couple weeks like they planned, now as in tonight, as quickly as she can. The girls need to FaceTime tonight and tell their dad how much they love him. And they all need to take time off of work, and they need to be with him after he's admitted tonight. I've taught for nearly 30 years about the importance of truth-telling and about the primacy of patient autonomy. I've shared bad news with countless patients over the years and mentored hundreds of learners in these conversations 
coaching them through their early experiences with this incredibly critical skill. But my friend isn't my patient. These are my family. And that makes telling them the truth entirely different. It's their physician's job to do this, but he doesn't really know them. And he referred them with good intentions, but with the briefest of explanations about this life-changing diagnosis. During the FaceTime call they arranged that night, they all spoke of how much they loved each other. After that call, my friend rarely uttered another word. His daughter drove all night from Nashville to Madison. Our dear friend who was going to travel with us around the world died a few days later, but with all of his girls surrounding him. Master and I have been working on this project for the last six months to get this to happen. And we, we picked to host this event because we truly believe that stories are one of the greatest tools that we have as humans to help us empathize with each other. And stories give us this sense of belonging in this big, big, lonely world. And it's been a privilege to help host this event tonight. But the greatest honor of tonight was the work that our storytellers put in many of whom were presenting for the first time in public. And so I, I can't tell you how much it means to me that all of you in attendance came to support these storytellers tonight. And I, I hope you appreciated these moving stories as much as I have. So I'm deeply grateful that you all attended today. Thank you. <laughs>